The Indiana House of Representatives and Senate have passed right-to-try legislation, which would grant terminally ill patients access to drugs that have only made it through the first three phases in the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval process. The bill is now heading to the governor's desk for final approval. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with a mother who has been advocating for the bill on behalf of her son, and two doctors whose research relates to medical ethics and phase one clinical trials for new medications. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Joe Wren. And today we're going to talk about uh, the Right to Try bill that has just passed the Indiana General Assembly. Um, the legislature gave final approval Thursday to this measure that would give patients easier access to experimental drugs not yet on pharmacy shelves. The bill would allow ac- access to treatments that have cleared the first phase of the Food and Drug Administration's approval process. And it is awaiting Governor Mike Pence's signature. We have uh, three guests. One is in the studio here with us, and two are joining us by phone. Laura McClinn is in the studio, and Laura has advocated for right-to-try legislation in Indiana. Her five-year-old son, Jordan, has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Dr. Chris Doherty is joining us by phone from the University of Chicago's uh, Medicine's McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. Uh, Dr. Doherty is an IU undergraduate and undergraduate, and also uh, from the medical school. His research focuses on ethical issues involved in cancer treatment. And joining us also is Dr. Bert O'Neill. He is the phase one director at the Indiana University Simon Cancer Center. He oversees phase one clinical trials for all areas of cancer treatment can join our conversation uh, live by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, again, welcome to all three of you to joining the program. And, Joe, it's nice to be with you today. Thank you very much for having me. Right. Thanks for coming back. Joe's been here a few times before. <laughs> all right. I wanted to, to just start with uh, – with uh, let's let's start with Dr. Doherty, if we if I if I could, and and talk about um, you know the the process of getting a new drug um, uh, approved by the FDA and what it usually goes through. Sure, uh, I mean the process. I think it's fair to say that it, most people view it as a fairly complicated, uh, if not burdensome, process, and it's certainly uh, heavily regulated. Um, and it's probably important to note that it is. Um, regulated by the federal uh, government. And most, if we're talking about 
drugs themselves that uh, wind up approved by the FDA, so um, terminal agents. Most of them in this day and age are developed by uh, the pharmaceutical uh, companies, by the pharmaceutical industry. And so they spend um, typically hundreds of millions and in total, if not billions of dollars um, per year identifying agents in their laboratories that um, have some anti-disease activity and um, where, because the diagnosis is so uh, prevalent, where much of the, those efforts uh, take place is with regard to, to cancer therapies. So the NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, and specifically the specific institute uh, within um, the NIH, the National Cancer Institute, um, is also uh, heavily involved in identifying agents out of the laboratory. So agents are developed, uh, tested, so-called in the test tube, and in so-called animal models. So in small animals that um, have cancer or have cancer literally implanted into them, and in animal experiments um, are then undergo testing with um, these experimental drugs, or what we should call experimental agents. They're not presumably drugs until they're eventually approved by the FDA. So they're tested, and agents that would seem to have anti-cancer activity, shrinking tumors, um, and uh, would appear to be safe, at least in, in the animals, then come out of the laboratory and, um, for instance, in, in Dr. O'Neill's you know, program at IU, are then tested literally for the first time in uh, humans. And uh, I would let Dr. O'Neill talk, talk more specifically about that process. And then once they complete that first hurdle of so-called phase one testing, they go through subsequent testing uh, to test to, uh, after safety testing to test if they actually have anti-disease activity in so-called phase two trials, and then are brought forward into so-called phase three trials, which tend to be uh, randomized trials where patients with active disease or then enter a trial where they receive either the new therapy combined with existing drugs, and then that's compared to whatever the existing standard of care or therapy might be for, for a given disease. And then only at that point, if they're actually proved to be better than in some way, that is, they're safer, or they uh, make people live longer or live better, they, will, they are then reviewed by the FDA, and um, those that, that pass that, that, um, that bar then approved, and uh, it is a process that takes a fair amount of time. Right. I was just going to ask about how many, through all, through uh, all that. about how long, doctor, time-wise are we well, talking? Well, certainly, it's certainly years. I, uh, I think the estimates can be anywhere from seven to ten years. It, I think it's also worth noting, though, that the majority of drugs, agents that come out of the laboratory and are tested in phase one trials, the majority of them are never passed the bar with regard to FDA approval. And in fact, many of them don't even pass the bar um, after phase two testing. That is, we may identify the ability to identify their, that they can be given safely and know enough about them to know how much to give and how often to give. But once they move into that phase two testing, at least traditionally, most of those agents don't have enough disease activity to warrant even comparing to the standard of care in the so-called phase three trial. But it's years in the making, but most of the, these agents do not um, eventually pass the bar to be shown to be worthwhile 
to be given to to, to patients um, and to be better than, than the, whatever the standard of care might be. So, Dr. O'Neill, could you sort of walk us through a, a phase one trial or add in any way to uh, what Dr. Doherty has, has said? Sure, absolutely. And I, I think this is kind of critical uh, with relationship to this to this bill is what what is a phase one because what this bill is essentially saying is it would potentially provide access to drugs that have only gone through phase one and no other testing. Um, so a phase one clinical trial <clears throat> is a trial to design to identify the appropriate dose and schedule of administration of a of a new drug. Um, these trials are specifically not designed to look at effectiveness um, because really we have to get through this first hurdle of how do you give the drug before we can really start looking at how well does the drug work. And so typically these look at relatively small number of patients, treat a small number at a time uh, with often increasing doses as you go from group to group of patients until we reach a dose level where too many side effects are seen and then, and then we define what we call a maximum tolerated dose. So, so maximum tolerated dose is the goal of a phase one study and it's actually relatively uncommon at the end of a phase one study for us to have much of an idea about the effectiveness of the drug for for any particular cancer, and furthermore, these studies often study patients with many different kinds of cancers. So you might have just a really handful of people with a variety of different cancers enrolled in these trials. Okay. Um, so I'm going to turn to uh, to Laura McClendon now, because Laura, your your son. Well, just tell us about your son, Jordan. Well, my my son, Jordan. He's five. He has um, muscular dystrophy. So I, I hear most of the conversation is about cancer, which is understandable. But my son has a fatal condition that's a muscle wasting disease. So it is 100% fatal. Unlike cancer, he can't fight it. Um, it's not something that's invaded his body that he can fight off. He's actually missing something. Um, but he, he still has a fatal condition, so that is why, you know, right to try still applies um, to people like Jordan as well, I believe. Mm -hmm. So in your testimony, I mean, what, what were you asking the legislature to do? What, what, why were you so involved in, in this issue? Well, the reason I, I'm involved in this is there actually is something in the pipeline that could help Jordan, and it, it hasn't entered phase one yet. It's going to enter it this summer. And um, we have been hopeful all along that Jordan would make it into this clinical trial. Um, however, the criteria is probably going to be that um, they have to be seven. Jordan's going to turn six in May, so he's not going to make it in. So I'm trying to find every way that I can to save my son's life. Um, what right to try says is if, if something has made it through phase one, you have a right to try it. The difference in thinking about phase one and some of these things that I'm hearing these doctors talk about, you know, with phase one only proves that it's safe but not effective. The difference with Jordan is there's another drug that's led the way, and it's in phase three right now. That drug has the same uh, chemical backbone back as the drug that Jordan will need. It has already been proven safe, and it's already been proven effective. Um, they're going to be asking the FDA to actually approve this drug because they're that far along in the process. 
So I think Jordan's situation is a little bit different in that this is not just, hey, there's something out there. It's been proven safe. We don't know if it's going to work or not. We're pretty sure it's going to work. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit different for Jordan. Right. Okay. So what could the, the drug do for Jordan? What? Well, what the drug will do for Jordan is um, he's missing eight exons on the dystrophin gene. And um, the way it works is there's 79 exons. He's missing 45 through 52. Well, when his body tries to go through and read that sequence, um, it has to go through all 79 of them for the body to create dystrophin. And dystrophin is what you need for your muscles to work. Basically, it's a protein. So uh, this this agent that uh, Jordan could benefit from, it actually goes in and it skips exon 53. And then the way your DNA works is it, they're like these puzzle pieces. They all fit together. So 44 um, is where Jordan stops because he's missing 45 through 52. We're going to confuse the body and say, hey, let's go ahead and skip number 53 because 44 and 54, they fit together like puzzle pieces. So we confuse the body. We skip 53. So now he's really kind of missing nine instead of eight. But when 44 and 54 connect together, his body would be able to create a functional amount of dystrophin, which in my son's case could change his life expectancy to 20-something to maybe like 50, 60, 70, 80. It it basically turns it into a milder form of muscular dystrophy. I see. Okay. If you want to join us uh, today on the program, as always, you can give us a call at 855-0811 in Bloomington. That's 812-855-0811. And also toll-free from outside of the, the Bloomington area, 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Laura, I just wanted to, to know a little bit more. I mean, Jordan's not here, of course, today mm-hmm. with us. I just want to kind of get to know him more. Tell us more about him. Well, Jordan, I mean, if you saw him, he's an active, um, vibrant little five-year-old. He has mm-hmm. a lot of faith in God, and he likes to tell people about that. He um, runs around. You know, everywhere he goes, he acts like he owns the place. <laughs> and, you know, I take him to the state house. He knows everybody there. He knows, you know, he just, he just he's really happy. It, it, most people, unless you know what you're looking for, you wouldn't even really know, you know, that anything's wrong. Um, he loves life, and I mean, he's just—he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And what's the experience like at the state house? Because I know he's been there, and yeah. he's even had an opportunity to speak oh, at, yeah. in front of the legislature. He did, yeah. yeah. What was that like for him? Well, it was pretty cool. I mean, yeah. you know, he just walks right up to the podium, and you know, <laughs> he, he's like a natural speaker. And I mean, in all honesty, he is five, and I do protect him somewhat. I don't, you know, look at him every day and say, you know you're going to die sooner than, you know, I, I, he, he, he knows he has muscular dystrophy, but we don't dwell on the negative side of that. He does know that mommy's fighting for him and that we're trying to make every day the best day ever. Um, he says some really surprising things when he gets to the microphone. Uh, like, you know, the last time, uh, the first time we testified uh, before the House committee, you know, he got up to the microphone and um, he he basically told them, he said, I like helping people. I like rescuing people because he, you know, he, he got a job as a firefighter, which is kind of what started this whole process. And, um, and you know, he speaks in there and says, you know, I love you, mommy. And then at the last testimony, I, you know, I asked him if he wanted to come up and say anything. And he, and he said three words and, and he basically got in the microphone and, and looked at them and said, please say yes. And, you know, I don't know that he knows the level of what that meant, but but that's what he said, and I, I think those three words said a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, doctors, both of you, um, you know, Laura's situation is a little bit different from what 
you're talking about. It sounds like if if I understand what Laura is saying, that that the the drug that she really needs access to for Jordan has already been through phase one, correct? His drug hasn't, but okay. the cousin drug, the cousin which drug. does the same thing, but it skips Exxon 51, right. okay. it has been, and it has shown that it's safe and effective, and you know it, it's working. There are no known side effects. Um, so his drug won't start phase one until this summer, but um, you know the chemical backbone is the same as the I drug see. that's already pretty far along. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, I wonder, doctors, I, I mean, I know that there are you know the 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 FDA process has been in place for a, for a long time because you do want to make sure that you know these drugs that people are are getting and using are safe and effective i mean those are i think those are terms that we often use so i guess i'm asking both of you you know do you see um issues with a, a right to try bill or do you think this is the way we should be going dr o'neill can i start with you Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that the the bills like this, and, and obviously this is not the the first of its kind in the, in the United States, have come out of, I guess, frustration with the process of getting access to to early experimental drugs, um, and that you know that for all of us is understandable. We've all had to face patients and tell them, you know, we just don't have any other treatments to, to offer or, or, you know, there's a, there's a drug that could potentially be helpful to you, but it's only available in a clinical trial somewhere far away that patients may not want to go. So the, you know, the, the idea of having this is very understandable. Um, but, you know, the, the, some, of the, some of the specifics of this particular bill can create some, some serious problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first of those is this definition of what is a, you know, what is a, a potentially effective drug having just passed through phase one. I, I think that that opens up a lot of issues. You know, who is going to decide what's, you know, what's the right drug for, for this patient? Is that their local oncologist? They may not really have enough information to determine, you know, out of the many drugs that are in phase one, what might be a good one. Um, there's potential for the patient to get charged for this drug because there's no provision in here that anyone has to pay for the drug. So if the drug company does not provide the drug for free, the the cost of these drugs are going to fall onto the patient and potentially their families. So, you know, this creates a, a bad situation for many patients and really has the potential to be unfair because you know, patients with more money may get more access to, to these drugs than patients with less money. Um, and I think a lot of us worry about, you know, is there going to be a financial incentive for physicians to prescribe things that they might get money for? Um, you know, you know, most most physicians have their patient's best interest in mind, but money is obviously a powerful uh, incentive for many people. So, you know, there's potential there for for some abuse of the system, given the given the very broad language in this bill. Mm-hmm. It, just from you know, from my outside perspective, it seems like that that physicians um, would have to have, or, or for this to work right, would have to have some a lot of input into this and be able to explain. I mean, um, Laura seems like she's incredibly knowledgeable about the 
about what's going on with her son, and that's, you know, as a, as a parent should be. But not all parents are going to be as knowledgeable as Laura and understand what might be available. So it, it seems as if, I guess I'm just asking you if I've got this right, it seems like physicians would have to be really involved in this process and say, here's this, here's this drug that's past phase one, and I think this actually might be something that would work for you. Uh, that's correct. And, you know, I think, and, and I'm speaking mostly for the oncology world, and, and, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I think that's where most of the activity is going to be, because obviously that's our kind of our most common terminal disease where, where people are seeking out treatments, is, you know, the physicians are going to have to be aware of, you know, there's, there's you know, 80 to 100 phase one trials going on at any given time. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's information overload for them. Are they really going to be able to pick what's the, what's the best choice for people? Or are they going to go on anecdotes of, you know, one person responded, 10% responded? What's the, you know, what's really the cutoff for effective enough to, to justify trying on somebody? Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Doherty, so I'll, I'll ask you that question. You're a medical oncologist uh, in your in your role, I mean, you know, how how do you see? Do you, do you think this will make your um, job more? How do I want to put this? I mean, are, is it promising to you to have this opportunity to say, "Hey, I could pick a drug and at least try it and give some hope to somebody after it's been through phase one"? Well, I I um, might want to try to address the issue not as a a, a physician to okay. uh, patients. Um, First, but I just to try to understand. I mean, what we're talking about, I think, is what what this speaks to is this these efforts to try to find a balance between what is uh, pretty conservative and relatively regulated process of drug development, and trying to balance that with the interests of real patients with real diseases that are killing them right now and for which there are not good drugs available. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I would also want to remind us that the process that we have, the regulatory process that we have, such as it is, as cumbersome as it is, and as long as it may take to develop, is, is presumably come into existence for some reason. And those reasons, I mean, they're historical, and they go back decades and um, almost 100 years, but they come as a result of an inability to provide, to develop agents uh, safely, and to really meaningfully identify which agents are going to be useful. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the best historical anecdotes, and one which is, which is commonly viewed as the one that brought as much regulatory regulation to the process as any other event, was, of course, the example of thalidomide in the early 60s. And thalidomide was an agent that was believed to be, it was a sedative, it was a sedative, it was believed to be so safe, in fact, that you could even give it to pregnant women. And, of course, that didn't turn out to be the case at all, and thalidomide is the drug that we now identify as causing um, limb deformities in, um, in, during the uh, time of development in the uterus for the fetus. And uh, children were born here and in uh, Europe with, uh, with malformed lim- limbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that brought um, a lot of extra regulation with regard to being able to identify a process for experimentation 
and um, uh, more specifically the kinds of testing that goes on in the laboratory before it's brought out and tested in humans. And there are other events as well, some of them actually not just oversight or lack of oversight, but egregious um, abuses that have brought about the regulatory process that we have. So I, I just want to remind people that the regulatory process is there for a reason. Um, it has come into existence for a reason, and most of those reasons are a result of an inability to otherwise create a process where agents can come out of the laboratory and be developed uh, safely and then be developed um, to determine if they're, they're effective. I think I also might think that, that focusing on um, physicians in this process in a, in a world where we have um, right-to-try legislation may also um, not put the focus where, where it may need to be because patients and families may be able to come to a physician. They may be able to identify an agent that has been through phase one testing and say, we want this one. Mm-hmm. And some of those may be highly informed, highly mm-hmm. informed patients and families like Ms. Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, others may be less so, but they may identify an agent. And we have patients, and, and Dr. O'Neill has patients that, that will come to him and say, I heard about this drug. Do you have it? I heard it's in phase one testing, or I heard it's in phase two testing, or I heard it's going to be. Uh, do you have it? And so that's already happening. People are coming and knowing uh, specifically about drugs. It's not the majority of patients and families that do that, but there's a substantial minority mm-hmm. that, that have educated themselves. But that isn't that alone, a patient or family coming and saying, we want it, and an individual state passing legislation to say that a patient and family has a right to have it, at, at that point, to place it into the physician's hands and say, okay, now you prescribe it, the question is, how are they going to get a hold of it? And who's going to give it to them? Mm-hmm. Who's going to give them that agent? And I, I wonder if we couldn't just explore that question, and I'd, I'd just like to hear kind of everybody's viewpoint and say, okay, I'm a doc. I'm a cancer doc. Patient families come to me. They want this drug. It's been through phase one testing at Ohio State University or at the University of Chicago uh, or at IU. And Abbott essentially owns this drug and has put hundreds of millions of dollars into the development of it. I'm more than happy to give it. Now, we can come back and talk about later about the potential for this becoming widespread and then essentially dismantling and destroying the clinical trial process and the ability to get answers to the questions that we do need about safety, efficacy, and whether it's better than the standard care. That's another issue. But the question is, who's going to give that doctor that drug for them to give that patient? As Dr. O'Neill said then, and because we live in a Western healthcare environment, who's going to pay for it? And I think to ignore those questions is essentially to, to not address how in the world the legislation may be passed and no one can deny the reasons for why there are motivations to pass this legislation. But the logistical questions, I think, have to be answered. And it's not clear to me in the legislative process that anyone has even addressed those issues or paid attention to them. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break. There are a lot of issues on the table, and we'll get to them uh, after the break. We also have a phone call we're going to get to right as soon as we come out of the break. We're talking about right-to-try legislation that passed the Indiana General Assembly this week and is awaiting Governor Pence's signature. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIU.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Joe Wren from Indiana News Desk. And um, we're talking about Indiana's uh, The Right to Try bill that passed the Indiana Senate uh, and House both now, uh, had passed it yesterday, and now is on its way to the, uh, the governor's desk for his signature. We have one guest in the studio, Laura McLenn, who has advocated for the right to life legislation in Indiana. Uh, on behalf of her five-year-old son, Jordan, who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And also, Dr. Chris Doherty is with us. He's at the University of Chicago, uh, University of Chicago Medicine's McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, and his research focuses on ethical issues involved in cancer treatment. And Dr. Bert O'Neill is with us. He is the phase one director at the Indiana University Simon Cancer Center. Uh, he oversees phase one clinical trials for all areas of cancer treatment. So if you want to join us, please give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And I'm going to ask our caller, Kurt, to be patient for one more minute because we're going to go to Laura. She's got some uh, things she wants to say in response to some of the things that, that both Dr. Doherty and Dr. O'Neill had said. Well, uh, gosh, there's a lot of things that were kind of put out there. Uh, w one thing that I guess I, I would like for everyone to hear is that right to try isn't for everyone. And maybe it's only for one person. Um, you know, hopefully it's for a lot of people. Uh, there are obstacles. Um, I, I'd like to focus on the opportunities instead of the obstacles. Money, of course, is an obstacle. But, you know, in this country... The things that we spend money on, the things that people spend money on, you know, I've already heard rumors that there are some non-for-profits already starting up to raise money just for this, for people that can't afford it. To me, money is is a little thing. I know it's a big thing, but for me, in, in light of everything that's going on here, that's a small obstacle. I think there's lots of places for that money to come from. I also think it's important to say that this doesn't have to be for everyone. Um, you know, for it might work for my son. It might work, you know, for someone else. You know, in, in our family, we have a lot of faith, and, and we have a father who cares about the one. And for us, if one person can benefit from this, it's worth it. It's not hurting anybody else because everybody else still right where we started. So it's not, you know, to say it's unfair 
Well, it's all unfair. All the people we're talking about have a, have a terminal condition. That's not fair. But by helping one person or hopefully many, it's not putting any more hurt on the people that are in the situation that they're already in, if that makes sense. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, we have a uh, caller we'd like to get to. Kurt uh, is actually calling from the Goldwater, Goldwater Institute from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you're on Noon Edition. Go ahead. Uh, uh, good morning. It's good. Mo- it's morning. It, here. It's morning there. <laughs> it, it, it is morning here. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate uh, the forum and I appreciate the opportunity to speak. I, I was listening to um, to the show and, and what Dr. O'Neill was saying, and, and I just kind of wanted to to add or address uh, a few issues. Dr. O'Neill, first of all, I appreciate um, what both Dr. O'Neill and Dr. Doherty are doing and saying. I mean, their work is unbelievable. And their work is really what makes, um, you know, medical technology advance and what's possible. So thank them for that. Now, as, as opposed to uh, or going back to the right to try laws, Dr. Neal seemed to focus over and over again on phase one testing, phase one trials, and the completion of that as if all these drugs or medications that are going to become eligible are going to be right out of phase one. Now, phase one under these laws are certainly uh, the floor. They have to have completed phase one. Um, What he didn't note is that that these drugs have to remain in the FDA approval process uh, in most states that have passed this law, and that the reality of the drugs that are going to be used are the ones just like Laura was talking about, ones that are much further along in phase three, showing efficacy, um, showing promise, in fact, potentially even used outside this country. There's a drug... um, that uh, treats, uh, that, that they're looking at down in LSU for um, neuroendocrine cancers that is manufactured in Houston, and it's a combination of drugs, half of which is not available here in America. They can't use it at LSU, and it's been in use in other parts of the world, sometimes effective, sometimes not. This isn't a cure-all. So I just want to kind of, kind of um, clear up the misconception that, hey, Manufacturers are going to be able to market these drugs as soon as they pass phase one and take advantage of people. That's not what these are about at all. Okay. Dr. O'Neill, do you want to respond? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think I understand the intent of that statement, but the, the reality is if you look at the wording, the wording of the Indiana bill does not reflect this intent it is it is too broad it's you know it's allowing it's really allowing the entire box to be opened it's not requiring any sort of efficacy language whatsoever so that's to me that's an issue i again i think the intent of bills like this is noble um uh, i think the the execution here probably needs some perhaps more work more thought from those who know the bills in, in other states because or, or legislation in other states, are they similar to Indiana, or do they have different types of amendments or uh, that they changed throughout the years? And I, I might say before we get an answer that Michigan, Colorado, Missouri, and Louisiana also have passed right to, let, to try bills, and Arizona actually passed this through a voter referendum. With 80% of the people mm-hmm. voting yes, which is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so does anybody know much about those bills? I think our 
probably get the Goldwater Institute yeah. Oh, yeah. would know a fair amount. I think because my understanding is that many of these bills actually are you know, receive a fair amount of, of support and resources from the Goldwater Institute to, with regard to the language that's, uh, that, 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 that is viewed as appropriate for the, for the state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Kurt, are you still there? Yeah, I am still here, and certainly I can address that. I will say that every law, um, which it's currently law in eight states, I believe, there are okay. three governors just signed uh, the bill last week. They're all very similar. Um, they all have a little bit uh, different language depending on what was in that potential state state code, you know, previously about terminal illnesses and things like that. But essentially they all, uh, if we're talking about the phase one language, make phase one um, the safety testing phase of the FDA, the floor. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head of any one of the laws that has anything different in that regard. And again, they all require this, uh, rec- and I think Dr. Doherty addressed this some, the recommendation uh, or prescription, whatever you want to call it, from the treating physician. So this is an issue between patient and doctor. And certainly I would agree that many patients today are much more informed, uh, just like you heard from Laura, and may uh, approach their doctor and say, hey, there's this drug out there within the clinical testing phases that I think can help. What do you think? And then it does really become a medical decision after everything else that has been approved has been exhausted. Uh, Is this what's best for the patient? And I know that's a difficult decision for physicians, but that's the business uh, that they're in. And certainly, if the physician thinks that this is not the best course of action, then that would not be uh, the recommendation. All right. Could I respond? Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's Chris Doherty in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I I want to perhaps capitalize on the statement about, um, and perhaps he might not be in favor of me using it, but the, but the phrase that was just mentioned was the, that that's the business that the physician is in. I, 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 we have to come back to the cost issues here. I mean, we're talking about um, the American medical system, which is the most expensive medical system in the world, and which many will recognize, even the beneficiaries of it, will recognize as a broken system. And uh, where just about everybody will recognize is unsustainable. In this day and age, uh, oncologists and others can write prescriptions for medications, can make treatment plans for patients, and they cannot carry them out in the current environment because the way that the payer systems are structured. And so I can write a prescription for one of our newest uh, anti-cancer agents, which is a pill. And I can write a prescription for what I think is the best choice, as can Dr. O'Neill, and he can speak to this as equally as or better than I can. And I can hand that prescription to the patient, and they will not be able to get that drug. And that's one that's fully FDA approved, because they do not have a payer system. They do not have a prescription benefit that will allow them. Now, they can pay for it if they bring their briefcase full of money to the pharmacy. The pharmacy will order it for them. But we have a lot of patients for whom we otherwise would carry out treatment plans that we think are in their best interest. And I work here on the south side of Chicago, and we have a lot of patients that cannot pay for their health care. And I don't have any foundations to go to, even to get them agents that are fully FDA approved, that have been fully shown to be safe, fully shown to be effective, fully shown to be better than the standard of care. And I can't get them those therapies. Just just to be... I think to ignore the cost issue and simply to say... It's just an obstacle 
it's a major obstacle. It continues to be a major obstacle even in everyday care of everyday issues mm-hmm. in patients across this country. Yeah, Dr. Doherty, just to, to so our, our listeners sort of have a sense of how much money we're talking about here. So, you know, uh, one, of, one of the best uh, new cancer treatments that, like you said, that's a pill that you could you could prescribe for one of your patients now. So let's say, you know, let's, I'll just use me. So you're prescribing it for me, and, you know, I, I can't get insurance to pay for it. So what's it going to cost me to try to save my life with this pill, this, this course of treatment that you've Well, it can be variable, prescribed. Dr. O'Neill. You can... Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. About ten to twenty thousand dollars per month. For a, per month. Per month. Okay. Per month. Yes. For a fully FDA approved agent. Okay. Hmm. All right. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And we're trying to turn cancer into a chronic illness, just like HIV <laughs> is. And so you get on your HIV medicines, and you're on them not for days, weeks, or months. You're on them for years. Mm-hmm. Laura, just kind of going through this, have have you talked to other people in similar situations and have talked about the the funds or financing for this? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I have a huge um, Duchenne community. You know, we're mm-hmm. all Facebook friends, and, you know, we have support groups. And so, of course, money is the big thing. In fact, uh, you know, I, I had some friends that I kind of just had to step away from because I'm not the type of person to let those things bog me down because, like I said, this country, there, there's money here, and there, there's money spent on the most foolish things. There's non-for-profits for everything under the sun. And, and like, I, like I said earlier, this, this becoming a law, it's not hurting anyone, but it might help someone. So it's not setting back anyone that, that can't access it now, but it might give access to somebody that's able to. I mean... What if I figured out a way to to find the money to save my son's life? I'm not rich. We're middle class. We're typical middle class, you know, family. But if I can figure out a way to raise those funds, isn't that okay? I mean, it's not hurting anyone else. It's absolutely okay. It is absolutely okay. But I but I don't think there are any laws in place that would currently prevent you from doing that even now. As well, I think that um, we're because it is a legislation that does not single out a specific disease. Mm. And so we're talking a several-fold difference in the increased numbers of diagnoses of patients with cancer. And I think I, have, I, I fully understand the, the, the arguments um, for the legislation. But there really is a risk of harm here. This will harm patients who are much closer to death, uh, and who may want to try something in a last-ditch ditch effort. Can you expand on that and a little this, bit, doctor? Well, we have patients with cancer who are still surviving, but have a diagnosis that we know from from experience that it's not that they're not going to survive it. Yet they may still be well enough, or relatively well enough, to continue to receive some form of anti-cancer therapy. And the question is, what kind of anti-cancer therapy should they get? And if there is nothing out there that's FDA approved, where someone says this still has a, a chance at, at making the disease better or making you better with it, it, if there is nothing, then what's available? And what's available then is to pursue interventions without anti-disease activity, that is to not take further anti-cancer therapy, but to do all those things that we would want to do for patients in terms of supporting them with so-called palliative care, 
keeping them free of pain, keeping them as well as possible for as long as possible, or recognizing that there's nothing approved by the FDA or that's available to anybody with any, rel- with any amount of means, money or otherwise, to travel to Europe to get something, whatever. There is nothing that's viewed as, as worthwhile. But maybe there are drugs in the pipeline, there are agents in the pipeline, and that's then the clinical trial process that Dr. O'Neill is involved with. But in that setting where those agents are relatively few and far between and they're tested at agents that are at institutions that are relatively few and far between, if we've only got hundreds of trials enrolling tens of patients, but we have 500,000 patients a year dying from cancer, the majority of these patients are not going to be able to get access to these investigational agents. And so they're going to, their, their lives are going to continue with their disease and they're eventually going to die from it. And what they may be willing to do and what they may want to do with that time and trying to pursue last-ditch efforts. And I think that we have to be careful that if they walk into somebody's clinic, bar, so let's forget about the price issues, the cost issues. They walk into a clinic and doctor says, sure, write your prescription for an agent that's been given to 62 people before for which we don't know whether it works. We don't know exactly how safe it is. We don't know who's going to pay for it. I've never given it before, and you are days or weeks from death with organ function, livers and kidneys that don't work particularly well, and I'm going to give it. And I think there really is the potential when you're talking about what could potentially be the volumes of patients coming in families. There really is potential that patients' lives will end sooner as a result of side effects and toxicities in patients who are not able to tolerate even drugs for which we already know what their safety profiles are. But that, that's what it's all about. The patient should have a right to say, I am dying. I have a right to say, I'm willing to take that risk. And I, I do think that's what it's about. It's about people controlling their own destiny, just saying. Absolutely. They absolutely have that right. They absolutely have that right. They absolutely have that right to say it. The question is whether or not they have that right to say it in such a way that other individuals, organizations, institutions, then have an obligation to make that happen. And we know what's happened with some of the legislation in the past that has attempted to improve access through these rights based claims. And they have not made it all the way through. And I would ask, what has the experience been so far in the states that have approved these right to try legislations? And how many pharmaceutical companies have coughed up these agents and they have been given? All right. Kurt, from your uh, more national perspective, can you answer that? Do you have any? Uh, I I can. Um, I can tell you that in there's a number of states that have passed it this year, and, and so we'll talk about the ones that passed it late last year in late session, where, where the laws have been in effect in a little while. Um, I can't tell, I can't give the doctor a name or a drug or a pharmaceutical company that's actually participated yet, but I will say that most of the laws uh, from last year, the five states that passed it, I'll say last year, went into effect basically late or early to late fall, and then uh, Arizona actually January of this year. So. They're all very new. Uh, I can tell you that there's a number of hospital systems and, and uh, physicians out there that are discussing how um, 
to implement these laws if necessary. They're creating protocols and things like this. This is something new. It's something different. Uh, so everybody's taking a look at it. You know, quite frankly, everybody's being very cautious, but cautiously optimistic a- at this point. Um, I wish I could sit here and report to you that somebody like uh, Lord, uh, Laura's son, Jordan, has already taken advantage of this, but to date, I can't give you that information. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I don't think it has at this point. Mm-hmm. I can also tell you that we've talked to um, numerous uh, pharm- pharmaceutical companies out there and physicians, and there is interest in this. Obviously, people are cautious. It's something new. It's something out of the ordinary. Uh, but there are preparations being made. We hope that it happens soon, and I'd love to come back on a show and say, hey, this is somebody that's helped. Um, but we anticipate that that's going to happen uh, you know, hopefully by this summer, maybe within the year. All right. Thanks, Kurt. We're going to take another call now, so appreciate your being on the show with us. Thanks, Thank Kurt. You guys. Thank you very much. Uh, let's take the call from Lynn from Bloomington. Hello, Lynn. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I wanted to just make a point uh, about something that was just recently said about the patient's right uh, to seek as many experimental, you know, processes as they might need to given their terminal illness. And having been a a daughter of uh, parents who died of cancer, different kinds of cancer, um, my my experience with that and others has been that in that period of time when there's a terminal illness and you've exhausted the acceptable modes, there's a lot of desperation, and I wonder what the moral issue is with um, doctors and the medical staff in dealing with uh, sorting through whether that person's making a reasonable request that they really understand at that time. Not that they're not lucid or, or capable, but just the idea that um, a person will go into something uh, without really taking into account uh, the realities. And how, how do you sort that out? Who wants to tackle that one? Well, I think that's, this is uh, Dr. O'Neill. Yes. I, I, I think that's a very I, thoughtful comment. Uh, it, you know, there's, people are driven to do things in these desperate times that, you know, they, they probably personality-wise would not otherwise have done or, you know, if you, if you look at their behavior throughout the rest of their life. And I, and I do mm-hmm. think people, I do think people, uh, I see this and I, you know, as someone who does the phase trial, phase one trials and cares for people while they're on them, I really mm-hmm. hate to see someone who I feel like has kind of ruined the last months of their life by traveling too far, having too many side effects yeah. because of, because of an unrealistic feeling that they're going to, you know, be cured or have some mm-hmm. miraculous result from a, from a study. So I, you know, I, I, I do think that is a major part of this conversation, and I appreciate that being brought up. All right. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Lynn. Well, okay. I was just going to say, too, I mean, it, it, this is a partnership between the doctor and the patient, you know, and so the doctor has to help make that decision. I mean, in my case, yes, I've researched Jordan's drug, and I spend hours, you know, every day doing research. But um, if I don't have a doctor that agrees with me or that is, you know, going to be on board with it, then it's not going to work anyway. So 
I think someone in that situation, you know, they might be desperate, might not be able to make, you know, rational decisions, might be grasping, but hopefully there's someone advocating for them. In this case, a parent, a sister, a husband, you know, spouse, somebody, plus the doctor that can help, you know, make an informed decision. We only have about 90 seconds to go, and I just wanted to touch on whether there is uh, doctors, is there a liability issue involved here? That is, if you were to prescribe a, a drug that is just through phase one and it did create damage, would you be open to some liability issues? Well, the, the wording of the bill seems to indicate that 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 phy- the physician who, you know, administers this therapy is released from liability related to the, you know, to the side effects of that treatment. So, okay. um, you know, I guess I'm not an attorney, so I'd love to hear from an attorney how how uh, you know how much assurance that is for for us as physicians right okay well thanks for touching on that anyway um, wanted to give Laura any any last thoughts before we go we got about 30 more seconds so what what's next for you with when the governor passes when he signs the bill what's what's next for you and Jordan well um now we just have to wait. I mean, we just have to wait and start to tackle some of the obstacles and, and like I said, really just look for the opportunities and uh, see how we can make this happen. All right. Well, we are, we're out of time. And, Joe, thanks for sitting in. I know you didn't get a lot in Thank today. Thank you very much. Appreciate you ha- having you here. Appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Doherty and Dr. O'Neill, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, also, Laura McLenn, thanks for making the drive down from India. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I want to thank our producers, Lacey Scarmana and Alexander McCall, also engineer Mike Pashkash, and my usual co-host, Mary Catherine, who couldn't be here today. Uh, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.